Happy New Year! Here's a post-holiday bonus episode before we get back to our regularly scheduled programming next week. In December, I gave a keynote address at the Institute for Health Improvement's annual meeting in Orlando, Florida. I talked about the importance of storytelling in medicine, why healthcare providers need to share their personal stories and bear witness. Have a listen, and please tune in again next week. The year was 1958. A 14-year-old boy prepared to leave home for the first time. He was the fifth and youngest child of sugarcane and rice farmers in a rural village in Tamil Nadu in southern India. While his brothers went no further than the fifth grade, skipping school to play or nap, this boy spent all his time studying by kerosene lamp at night, dreaming of a different life. While his brothers were put to work in the fields early, his mother and his oldest brother, a surrogate parent to the boy after his father had died young, they encouraged his studies. The boy was good at school, but the runt of the litter and useless with the hard work of farming. He was the first to leave the village for school, the first to go to college, the first to leave the country, the first to go on for graduate studies, and the only one of his generation and for years to come. School in the village was a shelter without walls. There was one teacher for all the students. They wrote their math problems in the sand rather than on a chalkboard. To go on with his studies to high school, the boy needed to go to town. His brother arranged for a distant relative to cook for him. The boy was good at math and science and dreamed of going to engineering school. But between an excessive focus on his studies and a poor diet, his weight dropped from 49 pounds at the age of 13 down to 44 pounds by age 15. His friends nicknamed him Stick. And while he graduated at the top of his class, no engineering school would take him until he met the minimum weight of 95 pounds. Doctors prescribed raw eggs and whiskey for him to put on weight, (laughs) which needless to say made him rather popular with the other boys in the boarding house. He eventually made weight. Uh, Who knew you'd have to do this, not for wrestling weight class, but for admission to an engineering school. And he went on to the Indian Institute of Science, India's MIT, and from there to Toronto and then Chicago, arriving in 1968, at the height of the civil rights movement, and not long after this country loosened its racist restrictions on immigration. Relatively sheltered from the outside world until this time, The the boy talked with his friends about politics, family, and, of course, women. They became men in the Chicago of the late 1960s, and it was there that he met the sister of one of his classmates, a French woman who would become his bride, and they made a life together in this country. This boy, Stick, was my father. Much of my own trajectory mirrors my dad's, being good at math and science, skipping a couple grades along the way, advanced degrees in the sciences, albeit in medicine and public health, rather than in engineering. But I faced different challenges. I'm both advantaged and encumbered by this nation's history, by all that came even before my parents immigrated to this country, and by where we fell on the social ladder. 
I grew up in a middle-class immigrant family. My father was a tiger parent before the term even existed. <laughs> when I was in third grade uh, on family road trips, he'd have me factor algebraic equations in the car while my sister rolled her eyes and yawned with boredom. My mother drilled me on spelling bee words, and like any decent Indian American spelling bee contestant, I went to the state championships. <laughs> in the seventh grade, I attended school in the summers, taking college-level classes. Um, and I was enrolled in the, quote, study of mathematically precocious youth, a cohort study led by Johns Hopkins professor Dr. Julian Stanley on how best to educate and challenge exceptionally talented kids. But as a girl at that time, and as I suspect may be the case even today, I had to prove myself again and again. For my dad's job, we had to move every three or four years, even in junior high and high school. When my parents enrolled me in a public school in a suburb south of Seattle, so this was pre-Amazon, pre-Microsoft, Boeing country, the guidance counselor said that it would be a waste to put me in the gifted class because, he said, girls slacked off in high school and played dumb for the boys. At the time, there were only two girls in the gifted class my age, out of 25 or 30 kids. Of course, who gets into gifted classes and magnet schools and whether they should even exist remains controversial today. But I got really lucky. In August, I was in India visiting family. And uh, one of my dad's old college classmates, um, who now splits his time between the US and teaching at an engineering college in India, invited me to come speak to his class. And uh, afterwards, over dinner at his house, he told me about his students. I was surprised to hear that over half the women, or half the students at the engineering college were women, and all the top students were female. And yet, he said, engineering was a, quote, MRS degree. So in other words, Indian parents weren't sending their daughters to engineering school to become full-time engineers themselves. They were sending them there to find good husbands. The first priority after finishing their studies was to get married, settle down, and have kids. And that's today. I know if I had been born in Purimapalayam, the rural village where my dad's from, in the 1940s, I probably wouldn't have gone to college. A generation later, I might have gone to college, but not medical school, and I might still be living in the village now. I know all too well that, quote, success in life isn't just about hard work and personal decisions. I know I got very lucky, and it's why I feel a tremendous debt, not guilt, but a duty to give back, to contribute somehow. And it's why I've spent much of the last 20 years of my career working in global health and more recently caring for patients on Indian reservations. The stories we tell about ourselves are incredibly powerful. They tell us who we are, what we value, what our place is in the world, and how we can change it. Over the course of my career as a doctor, whether working in Sub-Saharan Africa, on AIDS units in Baltimore and New York City, or uh, on Indian reservations, I've learned that those stories are also some of the strongest predictors of our health. I pivoted to medical journalism, a mix of writing, TV, film, and podcasting, to help others 
see and understand the stories I was witnessing. This might seem like a trivial fact, but do you know how the Navajo introduce themselves? Starting with the maternal side of their family, they'll tell you who their grandmothers, grandfathers, and parents are, the clans to which they belong. And then they'll tell you where they're from and where they live now. And then only maybe their good name. The way they introduce themselves matters because it communicates their place in the world, their, in their kinship system, their relationship to the land, and their belief system. Yet, much of their collective memory has been blurred, the stories of their ancestors lost. First came the long walk. As many of you may know, um, in the late 1800s, white settlers were moving westward. They had their eyes set on valuable grazing land, gold and silver, and other valuable natural resources, which are still coveted by many today. To make way for white settlers, indigenous people were displaced. In the case of the Navajo, the army burned their homes and fields, shot their livestock, and poisoned their water, destroying their way of life and starving them into submission. Then the survivors, some 9,000 Navajo, were forcibly marched at gunpoint 400 miles to a place called Bosque in New Mexico. Bosque was an internment camp. Over the course of four years, another 2,400 Navajo died on the long walk and at Bosque from exposure to the elements, hunger, dysentery, pneumonia, tuberculosis, and smallpox. Most of my Navajo patients can trace their family histories back a few generations, but those stories faded out with the long walk. The memories of that time were just too painful. We don't talk about such things, many will tell you. And those stories again blur during the boarding school years, a century peaking in the 1970s when many Native American kids were taken from their families to be assimilated into mainstream white America. Our histories may burden us, but they also ground us. There's a professor of psychology by the name of Chris Lalonde who studies the relationship between personal narratives, persistence of Native language and culture, and the risk of suicide among First Nations peoples in Canada. As many of you may know, indigenous people, Native Americans and Alaska Natives, First Nations peoples in Canada, Aboriginal Australians and the Maori of New Zealand have some of the highest rates of suicide in the world. But that doesn't mean that every single indigenous person is at high risk of suicide. Chris's research has found that cultural strength and continuity are some of the strongest protective factors against suicide among First Nations peoples. As Chris told me, we use our sense of selfhood to propel us into the future. And there's evidence that that sense of selfhood doesn't just predict our mental health and risk for suicide, but is associated with a whole range of chronic conditions. Over the last couple of years, I've served on the uh, editorial advisory board of TED Med. And one thing that's really struck me over that time is how reluctant scientists and doctors are to share their personal stories. It requires a lot of coaxing, and even then, what you hear is only a tiny sliver of the whole. Why do we conflate personal silence with objectivity and modesty? When you're different, it's especially important 
to know your history and to draw meaning from it. You can get lost in the homogeneity, feel out of place, unmoored, or invisible. The pressure to assimilate is disempowering. Whether you're an indigenous person or, let's say, a woman of color at an elite academic institution, in a high-level corporate job, or perhaps newly elected to Congress. You may feel lesser than, and that can take a real toll on your sense of selfhood, as well as your physical, mental, and social well-being. Your story and your people's stories are important. Your identity is very much a product of both. An identity is human dignity. So own your story and ask your patients to share their stories with you. Thank you. Today's bonus episode of In Sickness and in Health was produced by Zach Dyer and me and recorded at the Institute for Health Improvement's 2018 meeting in Orlando, Florida. Our theme music is by Alan Best. You can learn more about this podcast and how to engage with us on social media at insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. That's insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. We'll be back with a new episode on our regular schedule this week. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This is In Sickness and in Health.